This is the God, Man and Markets podcast, conversations on faith, culture and the economy. Last time we, we talked about, we pursued our conversations on the common good and we, uh, we discussed two, two publications, two articles, um, uh, one by Sarab Amari and one by uh, Adrian Vermule. Uh, where they gave their own perspective on the common good and what should we do, you know, and essentially saying that uh, their, uh, you know, understanding of the common good doesn't exclude the the political authorities from being a little bit more authoritarian, uh, so to speak, as compared to where they are um, or what they're doing right now. Um, because the common good essentially, you know, requires, um, you know, the political authorities from directing the people into a, you know, a shared goal or a shared, you know, view of what uh, communal life is about, and um, and so we, we we critiqued that point of view, um, which seemed to be a little bit anti, at least anti-classical liberal. Uh, but now I'm wondering if. Um, uh, at the same time, you know, we, we, we thought that there was, you know, there was a problem with the, 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 the libertarian view or the classical liberal view, um, since essentially our modern societies are the product of it or seem to be the product of, of this uh, liberal order. And so, you know, what do we do? We touched a little bit briefly on the, the, the question of the Benedict option. Um, I want to discuss a little bit these things a little bit more concretely. But rehashing what we, what we, what you, Father Brad, explained about the common good, so it's mm -hmm. a, it's a metaphysical, uh, final cause of living in society, and yes. it's something that naturally draws everybody towards, right? We don't need to be coerced into loving the common good. We all naturally want to live in in society and want to live, uh, in in um, in the political community and and want to sort of uh, participate in the division of labor. Um, exactly. which is the, the, the essence of, of living in a political community. Um, but, but here we are in liberal societies, in societies that almost by definition have a misunderstanding um, of the common good or misunderstand the common good and with institutions that uh, not only misunderstand it, but essentially promote uh, um, an opposite view of the common good. And so... Uh, given that, given that we live in this uh, liberal order, um, how do we go about um, loving it despite its uh, liberality? Uh, and at the same time, we, 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 we love liberty. So we, we actually love the fact that it respects human, you know, to some extent, it, it respects human freedom. Uh, so th those are my, my thoughts. I mean, I, I don't have, maybe I'll, I'll open it up to anyone who wants to comment on, on those questions. Um, do, we, uh, do we stand by and just change the culture in our own corner of, of, uh, of, you know, of where we live and try to change the, you know, change the, the cultural landscape and, and in hope that, uh, that the country will move in the direction that uh, we think is more appropriate? Well, I mean, I, I, I will step in and comment, uh, Michelle, on just that last point, that what do we do practically? Do we just stand back uh, and focus on our own, our own particular sphere where, where we have, where we have uh, uh, 
uh, influence, which is our local communities, what, what has been called now the Benedict Option. And I think to a degree, the answer is yes, because that's always the response. That's always, uh, that's o- that's always I, I think, the authentic Christian response in the world at any age of history is um, <clears throat> to, to uh, in, in, light, in light of the kind of macro errors that we see or the macro cultural uh, global political trends, we simply focus on where we have agency. What we are in, what we, what we can, what we as as individual personal Christians can do in our families and in our communities to make our world, meaning our world, meaning our our, our sphere, our communities, make them uh, more represent a true communal order towards the good. Uh, if that's if that's what we mean by the Benedict option, then I would say, then that's not really an option. That's just always that's just the Christian instinct in general. To always to focus to focus on to focus on the local. I, I do I do think that uh, there's a there's a um, a slight uh, perversion in our thinking in the modern world because in the modern world in the post Hobbesian world I think when we have this idea of the the super state where you know from sea to shining sea we have one huge nation which is considered a whole like the United States of America or like China or Russia, these massive, massive bodies, that they that that perverts our focus away from what from the sphere of where a political common good can actually take place, which is in local communities, uh, lo- local local towns, cities, cities with the the authentic Aristotelian polis, and it it shifts it shifts our focus away to these massive super states, which are really modern inventions. Um, those did not exist in in Medieval times, those did not exist necessarily in ancient times. Uh, so I would say to, to answer your last question, yes, I, I think that our response to the modern in to our response to the modern dilemma is to focus on our local communities and and render them in whatever way we possibly can uh, more fitting to the common good. You know, in our in our local situation. Uh- Great, thanks. I, can, can I come in? I'm going to add mm-hmm. some things to that. Rather, uh, uh, everything that's been said so far, I agree with. The things that occur to me are that uh, if we're going to exercise freedom well, then uh, it, it has to come through love, and we promote love of the common good by an education that emphasises beauty and culture so it's part of that as, as the way a beauty person I'm bound to to say that but but it's hugely neglected and I would say even in those um, uh, sort of classical academies that you see popping up uh, which are clearly in my opinion far better than what you see in the public schools uh, even when beauty is discussed, it, it's a it's a class in aesthetics. It's not really it, there isn't a a, um, a formation that promotes a love of culture and beauty in quite the same way. Maybe in music you get it. Uh, people are often taught Gregorian chant or something like that, and of course that's precious few do that. But certainly in art, there's very little, um, and it's rare, and it's seen as being. Um, recreation in in the in a 
poor I mean it literally is recreation but it's but in a poor way it's seen as being second rate in comparison to the real job of education which is reading books and taking exams uh, on what you read um, and so that's the one thing but then the other thing that occurs to me is we need courage to exercise our freedom um, and if we don't exercise, you talked about agency, Father, but if we neglect our, we almost have a responsibility to exercise that agency because there's a society is hierarchical and in different roles, we will um, be examples to others in the roles that we have. It depends, you know, in one role, I might have a sort of be someone who people look up to. Each of us is in this position, whereas another, I'm looking to others but if though if we don't exercise our freedom well then um the the common good will not uh, be manifested if we, if we can see that we're not moving towards it as a society and i think in the face of what's going on now it's a sort of soft tyranny where people are not exercising their agency um and this is a lot of what charlie's about this is what this is i'm thinking of this in the light of what Charlie's been talking about with his March for Life, March for Eternal Life, um, things like that, being examples where we want to show cheerfully and courageously how to exercise that freedom. In the context of past discussions that we've had, it strikes me that even within the church, within the hierarchy of the church, we all have roles. And on the whole, we all, to a certain degree, even the pious are guilty of looking to Rome to sort things out rather than us just getting on with it and doing it. And bishops seem to have neglected their agency and their exercise of freedom uh, and just uh, not really stood up and done what is right when they're entitled to do so. They're not bound by Rome in every way. And as lay people, we are not dependent even on priests for much of what we do liturgically for example we can do the liturgy of the hours there are things um, we should look to reach up in our exercise of freedom as high as we can um, and i think it's as much due to the neglect of age of our each of us of our agency mm -hmm. should we say as it is people seeking to um obliterate it or or remove it yeah, I, I agree with that, and I, I think that in praise of uh, the, the kind of liberalism or American liberalism, at least we have the option to pursue our own vision of the good, even if it might be in conflict with what's being put on display in the, in the public square. And so there is more freedom, I think, than we tend to acknowledge to pursue mm -hmm. our own vision of the good, and we can do that either in whatever city or place we're already in, or we can go outside of that system and try to build something new on the, the proverbial frontier. Uh, there's not quite as much geographical frontier as there used to be. So in you know, Berkeley, I could maybe go to Alaska or I could go to Montana. Um, we could talk about seasteading going on the ocean. But first, I just wanna talk about the related idea, I think of the Benedict option which I understand to be not necessarily just um, expanding on your own community wherever you are, but specifically seeking out 
locales that are a little bit outside of the, you know, kind of on the outskirts of uh, Urbania and on the outskirts of this increasingly uncivilized civilization of, of cities and large institutions. So I, I, I'm torn between these two things. I'm torn between staying where I am and fighting the good fight and trying to go off the beaten path where there might already be some communities that are uh, looking to step outside of, uh, of the, the mainstream institutions. But that's my understanding of the Benedict Option is that it actually does involve uh, moving out of your context to create and nurture something just like uh, St. Benedict, you know, in founding uh, the, the monastic system, that was something that was kind of outside of the, the, uh, the, the failing Roman Empire. Yeah, I, th that's, I, I understand. I, I, that was my, from my point of view, that was my uh, criticism of, of the Benedict's option was this was too much, I felt, with the emphasis of creating sort of ghettos and enclaves that where we, you, you don't have to engage with a society that doesn't seem to share your values. Um, having said that, if you have fa a family, um, you have to fight to protect your family. <laughs> it's, it's different. It depends on your state of life and your situation to the, the degree to which you do that. Um, and, and then also it depends on the pressures that the one thing that I would say historically is that um, at the time that Benedict was setting up the monasteries, uh, there was no city really to that Rome had broken down. It wasn't the huge sort of uh, uh, metropolis that had been around the time of, you know, the time of Christ or something like that. But my Picturing wild animals running around the streets. And, sort, uh, sort of like that. And there was civilization to, he wasn't a skater, he was going to where people were. Uh, but nevertheless, the monasteries themselves, wherever they were, uh, were had walls around them and were, were separated. But uh, he was engaging, you know, the, the situation of the monastery um, is not separate from society in that way. We tend to think of that now because we are mostly city or suburban, suburb dwellers. Um, yeah. But actually agriculture and the development of the land was the place where the population was getting on with, with their lives and doing it. So he was right in the thick of it in, in that sense. Um, and then also there is this sort of traditional idea of the will going to the wilderness is not to escape society, but it's to engage with evil. That, that's where the devils are in there in the, the Egyptian desert or something like that. So um, even then there's a, there's a, an aspect of engagement in that. Um, but that is but what I'm saying is not arguing against going to Alaska or Mon Montana, I think, because uh, you have to be able to, you're balancing that with the exercise of freedom. And if you have responsibilities for families, that's a very different matter than if you are a single man, for example. Right. Well, I, I want to press actually, maybe argue against moving to Alaska or Montana. Um, and, and, and press the point a little bit that Father Brad was making that, you know, the, these giant states 
uh, are, you know, modern inventions and they're, you know, we would consider it unnatural. I mean, if we follow the Aristotelian domestic uh, classical idea of the political community, it, it just it to has, clarify, yeah. you don't mean giant states like Alaska and Montana, you mean like the United States, right? Like the United States, right? Like federal we, federal we government. Right, we, we can start here just with the United States. I mean, something really gigantic. I mean, uh, Aristotle thought that because political communities are natural entities, they, they, they have a natural size, just like a human being. There's a range of size that, you know, constitute. But if you see a human being who's, you know, 10 feet tall, that's, you know, immediately a monster or something that's abnormal. And so I, 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 I will take the position that our modern states especially, you know, perhaps specifically the United States is kind of a monstrosity. You know, it emerged in the age of enlightenment. It emerged with these ideas of um, liberalism, with, with these, uh, you know, faulty conceptions of the common good. And then with the civil war, sort of, it became this gigantic sort of unit, right? I mean, whatever localism it had before the civil war sort of disappeared. But now we're faced with living in this political community, which in a way we are called to love, Although at the same time, you know, we are called to hate it because if you read the media and whatnot, we're supposed to, to write. I mean, we get all these mixed messages about how we're supposed to feel about the United States. <laughs> but, but if we truly um, believe in this idea that political communities are natural entities and maybe they're best represented by a city with its environment, right? This environment, right? The city, a city and its countryside, then shouldn't we just... Um, and. And given that God has put us for whatever reason where we are at the moment, shouldn't we just, you know, plant our flag here, or this, you know, or, or stake our ground and say, okay, this is where I am. I happen to be in San Francisco myself. Um, it's a city, right? I mean, it's 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 it, it's closer to what a political community ought to be than if I think about myself as the a citizen of the United States, right? And let me just stay here and try to. Uh, evangelize the city of San Francisco and not be tempted to move right at the you know first whim of a you know uh, persecution just go or because I don't like it I'm going to move somewhere else or you know because we're otherwise always constantly moving and I think Christians are <laughs> are, are equally guilty uh, as the secular our secular counterparts mm -hmm. of just picking up our tent and going to greener pastures which in a way is against what the the love of the political common goods cause us to to do it calls us in a way to just stay where we are and and improve our natural environment our natural political environment now i say that as as one thought but I, at the same time i realize that it's you know it, it's hardly tenable just because the pervasive notion of the political common good is so different and contrary i mean you know are, are we expected you know ourselves individually to you know to try to um evangelize not only directly about the faith but also about this idea of living in a certain idea of the political community that we have in mind it seems like a very tall order but at the same time i i, I you know i, I want to at least put it on the table here that maybe we should just we should stay put and and really be um uh, be serious about what we mean when we say you know local political community and now there's also a movement a secessionist movement right a secessionist sentiment in the united states which maybe to some extent uh, even though it is not necessarily motivated by an understanding of the common good that we we've discussed and we share here 
but it may be motivated by a certain instinct about what the common good is so that people say enough of top-down uh, imposition from, from Washington. Let's just split up. Let's have our own states the way we, you know, we used to be, uh, an understanding of how, how states' autonomy you know, um, was you know, in the past or maybe rediscover a new kind of localism. So, so those are those are my thoughts. But I'm but I'm thinking the main my the main point I want to make is that, with our, in our own actions, uh, if we don't want to be sort of hypocritical with what we what we claim to say about the common good, you know, sh shouldn't we just stay where we are and say, you know, I'm not moving, right? I'm I'm part of this. I may not like it very much right now, but if I work at it, <laughs> I may eventually, you know, develop a certain natural uh, love for the community that I live in. Well, but, but presumably there is a point. I mean, we're not all called to be like Socrates, who will follow his uh, principles to the point of taking hemlock, which is which, which sounds like right. The, it's, you know, exactly. With, with the extreme of what you describe, right, I don't know right. whether that's prudent either. So, I, I think there's a there's a um, a spectrum there. But the, the question I'd throw back at you is that. Um, I think there is something natural to the nation. Um, and now whether that really is the United States, I, I think the model of the Constitution, I could, I'm not going to say I could improve on that, but whether it really works in the current United States, given that the population is so much greater now and there is a there is, it's almost breaking up into sort of a different nations, um, whatever that means but it occurs to me that and I'm looking to others here who know more about uh, Aristotelian ideas than me but it's something that wasn't really contained within Aristotle as being a sort of a natural entity he stopped at the polis but maybe that's because he didn't you know for him the nation was a given they were all Greeks and then beyond that they weren't even people really um, so he didn't really address things on a worldwide basis in the way that we would. Um, and it might be that there is a natural size of a nation or a natural order, which is not necessarily present in the US. Um, I think of things like in Europe, uh, and I'm not presenting that by any means as a, a perfect system at all, but nevertheless, you do have these smaller states whether I'm thinking, for example, Denmark it seems to work very successfully um, in many ways. Um, and it's wrong. The left misrepresents it as a model, as far as I can tell. But what you have there is a, a well-developed welfare state, but strong sort of cultural cohesion. And it's, its population is less than the Bay Area. And, yeah. and so... You could have federal principles as described. Maybe Switzerland is the same, for example. You have a, a, a constitution there, which I, apparently is based on the US constitution. I, I think that's right. It was established in about eight, the 1830s or something. Four cantons with a lot of autonomy. But there's, a, there's greater Swiss cohesion than it's a much smaller level. So... Um, now, this wouldn't have been a problem for the US in the past in that, you know, although it was huge geographically, it was still um, more cohesive in terms of the population, especially as the, 
it was largely focused on the sort of European Anglo-Saxon, I'm going to say. Um, but now we consider all people in, in different ways. Maybe there is a fragmentation there and there's a natural ordering that could take place. I'm just going to throw those ideas out there. David, I, I think it's a, I agree with you entirely. And I also want to just <clears throat> riff a little bit more on what Michelle was saying about the, the sort of natural size of the pol political common good. The political common good will have, have a certain, uh, there'll, there'll be a certain natural proportion, which is proportion to what? And I would say it has to be proportioned to the natural sphere of human love, because the uh -huh. common good is a call. It has common good is a cause. Common good is always a cause that moves like a final cause, and so it pulls us towards a good through our love. And so the natural, the natural sphere, the natural scope of the political common good, would be precisely the natural range of authentic natural human love. This is why the family. The family is the nucleus of where we're, where the human person learns the common good, because that's the natural sphere of love where a human person learns to love something more than itself. Then you have the this, then you have concentric spheres that go outside that village, where the neighborhood, the village, the polis, then the nation, uh, all are, are are authentic spheres of political common goods, since they represent a certain sphere or a certain good that can pull a human love and so this is the key something like uh you mentioned you mentioned denmark uh, david or switzerland or some of these uh, scandinavian nations where it seems like a type of welfare state or nanny state works very well now this is very very misunderstood by americans why is that it's because these very small scandinavian nations already have a very strong principle of cohesion that is able to order them through love towards one another. They have a very strong principle of, of, of uh, a principle that unites them. Um, I would say a very a, a, a thriving welfare state cannot create the common good. A thriving welfare state only presupposes a common good that already exists. Uh, okay. For example, every family functions this way. The father, the father earns the income, and then he feeds his children. Would we call that a welfare state? No, we wouldn't call that a welfare state. That's just the family. This is what the family does, because that's the natural order of love. That's the natural order of love. If a father has 12 children, and he only has medicine for one child, he gives the medicine to the child that's sick. We don't call that a preferential option for the sick. No, you just call that normal. That's just what that's just what human love does, because that's justice, right? Of course, you don't. You know, um, uh, that's not a scalable reality into infinity. <laughs> so the idea, the idea that you can have, the idea that you can have shared shared stuff or distributed things amongst multiple agents in a nation that like, like you had in a family or in a small village. This is in no way a scalable reality that can go all the way up to the nation. For example, and I think, uh, you know, for example, like uh, I was, let's say, let's say, okay, the United States federal government is going to provide for every citizen what is the basic requirements for natural human flourishing. Let's just say that, okay. 
if we say that, that the federal government will provide every citizen with basis, basics for natural human flourishing, this already presupposes a collective corporate idea of what human flourishing looks like. It already presupposes the common good. It presupposes a type of family unity on top of which any kind of welfare state would actually work in justice and not actually render more injustice possible. Because very quickly someone will say, well, natural human flourishing requires the right to abortion. Natural human flourishing requires that the government pay for my four or five year college degree and then my master's degree and all this stuff. So immediately, if you if you already if you already have a pluralistic, massive superstate like the United States of America, you have something so so large, you by that by, by that very nature, you have you don't have the conditions. You don't have the conditions that would render a welfare state like Denmark or Sweden at all a just society. Because it's simply, it's simply not it's simply not scalable. Because the common good must must only operate on the sphere of human love. And human beings love their local communities. Human beings, this is why I think, Michelle, I think you have a, a great, great point where it's saying you love San Francisco, that's your city. And a city, a city is a place where a human being lives, a person, a place where a human being has a home and learns to love. So it's not that the human person just like looks at all the cities on the market and then picks, a, picks the correct city to be a citizen of. That's not how citizenship works. Citizenship works because we are, as, as embodied human creatures, as, as soul and body composites, we belong in a place. And we, we learn to love a place. We are not angels that can just go anywhere willy-nilly. We are material creatures that belong in a locale and we're called to a locale and then we learn to love a certain place. And then our love for that place will determine our agency in that place. And that's why I, appre I appreciate your point, David, about, uh, about courage. I, I think the very presence of the massive modern superstate has fooled us into thinking that, that we have no agency, that the superstate will do everything for us. The nanny state will take care of our community. The nanny state will take care of the poor in, in our midst. The nanny state will take care of educating my kids. The nanny state will take care of me when I have a fever. And this is a, this is a great, this is a great, I think it's a, uh, that those are the, those are the disposition, those, those are the occasions that lead to lack of virtue because people don't learn to take ownership of the place where they live. They don't learn to take a natural ownership of their own homes and their neighborhoods, their city streets. They don't take ownership of their village and then just uh, immediately alienate all that responsibility to something like the super state. And that's, that's a huge problem I see in the modern world. So that's just my riff, riff yeah, the, on those ideas. The, there's a, a perfect segue here. Uh, to, there's two things that come to mind and I'm, I'll start with just one of them, which is this idea of habitat and bioregion, which I've been thinking about a lot in the context of uh, movement and you know this concept of exercise is a modern concept. I don't think Ivan Illich ever really uh, put his uh, sights on exercise, but that would have been an interesting area where I would like to see his critique, because I think that yeah. there is this whole sort of fitness industrial complex that 
puts fitness literally in a box with these big box gyms and you know human beings throughout history have always maintained fitness by just going out into their environment and whether providing for their material needs or uh, engaging in leisure activities uh, th these were the ways that that we stayed healthy and so I'm actually I'm giving a, a little presentation with uh, another guy who's thinks he's also an, an Illichian incidentally named Frank Ferencich and I encourage people I think to, to check him out for a very different perspective than the one that we've been exploring here um, Frank Ferencich goes by the exuberant animal doesn't come at these issues with a, a, a Christian perspective but um, you know, is very much concerned with the idea of treating our local habitat well. And I think that this is a way, one way to conceive of the environmental movement and how that went awry is that it was coupled with the idea of sort of the mega state or even an entire planetary system, missing the fact that most environmental damage actually takes place at a very local level. And it's something that we can actually do something about if we don't get lost in the, this sort of impossible objective of uh, saving the world or uh, putting everyone under planetary government that can restrict our, our freedom so that we don't pollute too much. There are so many more solutions than just delegating this, this responsibility to a big behemoth. Um, and if I may also kind of segue from this into the other topic of uh, the, the size of government being the relevant question, this, the number of countries in the world. If we have 200 countries, as we do now, that's going to be a very different world from one where there's two countries or 2,000 countries. And so it doesn't require, maybe you'll have people in, in a world with more countries and, and freer uh, movement between them. Maybe you will have some people that don't feel a particular allegiance to the place that they're born, but they find another place that better suits uh, their, that they love more, that they can, can call home. Um, and then out of this ecosystem of many uh, sort of competing countries, you have, uh, I think that, that that inherently leads to better governance and a, a better promotion of the common good. And that's actually the, the thought experiment that kind of kicks off the, the whole concept of seasteading, which is new countries on the ocean, uh, but without getting into that whole can of worms, I think that just framing it through this lens of what will the world look like in 50 years or in 100 years if we have two countries versus 2,000 countries. I'd much rather live in the, the latter world where there's greater choice of, of where you live and that becomes sort of the relevant decision. You can either, uh, you can either you know, fight to change your country or you can leave uh, and, and vote with your feet, so to speak. I, Michelle, did you want to speak before I come in again? Okay. It's funny, I'm listening. Very interesting, Charlie. Thanks. I, I was, um, as you were speaking, I was thinking of the situation in the UK. I mentioned Switzerland with its four cantons, which had effectively American-style constitution uh, placed on it and it seems to work very well interestingly they they ne have never been part of the european union uh, they sort of cooperate with it always remained separate had a very strong sense of self-sufficiency um and the uk it's interesting that, that there's this funny split of allegiance where i come from so we have these uh 
currently four countries within the UK, Northern Ireland, uh, and there's a problem there in that Irish people, just from the very name, there is, there is, they feel Northern Irish, but they feel Irish, and they feel, and then in Northern Ireland, many people also feel British, um, and then, or part of the UK, but that, that if we, that's a, com a, a complexity that maybe is, uh, muddies the waters a little, but if you look at the Great Britain, you have Scotland, England, and Wales, and there is a, a, a natural allegiance. So Scotland has a soccer team, England has a soccer team, Wales does. But then we, we, we most people, I would say, have this natural allegiance to to Britain as well. So that, that they've had there's, there's a big movement for Scottish independence, but it's never gone all the way through to total independence. And when it comes down to it, it's almost as if they just can't bring themselves to do it. And, and <laughs> I think the problem there, incidentally, as a joke, my brother and I said it was unfair that the English didn't get a vote on Scottish independence because we'd, we'd have liked to have voted in favour. But um, we've had a chance. But the, the, um, the, I think the, maybe what's going on here is that actually... We have a Switzerland situation in that uh, it isn't just a, the, the Scotland is a natural entity that I mean, the, the, they sound different, they feel a cohesion, but they also feel a part of, of Britain. The problem in Britain is that historically England is the dominant nation and the government system is sort of central to England. And we, they haven't worked, the devolution is imbalanced. Um, it really isn't worked out. So that as soon as you start giving powers to Wales and uh, to Scotland, the English people lose out because they're not considered a region in the same way. They're just identified with this, the central government. And so uh, the poorer areas of the UK, um, or, or sorry, of England, like Northern England, are actually suffer more than those in Scotland and Wales in terms of uh, sort of government programs and this sort of thing, and that that's part of the problem that created all this sort of working class shift to the conservative, all these sort of dynamic shifts in voter, and the way that populations have voted. Now, if there had been a Switzerland situation where you had this sense of a federal government that with very limited uh, they seem to have maintained it in Switzerland, very limited uh, scope, and then strong autonomy in the regions, but strong cooperation between them. Uh, maybe that would be the way forward for the UK. And what we're seeing there are uh, in Britain is a problem because of the natural uh, allegiances of populations um, occurring. There, there are also these secession light options that you could have in places like the United States where, you know, states are given more autonomy, they become something more like a, a country, but then still under the, the banner of the United States. And I think that that was really kind of the original architecture of the Constitution was yeah, a, a okay. more federalistic system yeah, yeah. where we don't have to care what is happening in Texas or Florida if we believe in uh, kind of California values or vice versa. You know, the, the Florida people don't have to be so concerned with what's happening in California. We can just, to some extent, live and let live, but also 
have a cohesive sense of uh, an identity as both a, a smaller subset of the nation and hopefully there will be enough of a national cohesion to keep the, the overarching system together. And what would destroy that though, sort of vast amounts of mo movement and motion uh, where people come in who do not share those values, that mm -hmm. will destroy that. And so uh, that's not uh, hating foreigners, it's saying that there, that the demand for people to uh, integrate culturally is natural too, and it's right. Um, and you almost say, don't come unless you want to do that. that it, what, that's the natural consequence of what we're arguing. Um, and that is a, a, a problem, I think. Um, right, but so it, it, you can have huge numbers coming in. If they integrate, that maintains the culture. And, but it, if, they, if it splits the society, then it's a problem. Sorry, yeah. yeah, but I think it's a problem uh, already, even if, you know, for, for a secessionist movement uh, of sorts, it's already a problem because we're already enmeshed into two, you know, very fundamental disagreements, you know, among people who live in any kind of geographic area currently in the United States with people with very different uh, understandings and aspirations about, about the common good and what it means to live together. Um, but so I, I want to say, David, what, what you were saying, I want to I sort of um, uh, uh, agree with your comment about the nation. So I think political communities, we have to realize that, that really, I mean, even though they are natural, they're not the same as a natural substance like a human being or a dog or a tree or whatnot. I mean, they're historically contingent, right? And they're historically contingent and they, they evolve and, and they depend on fallen human action right and historically so so nations have emerged because cities have you know notoriously been at war with each other all the you know for, right so the greeks the, the reason uh, alexander was able to unite the greek cities is because they were fighting all the time and likewise with empires so empires have always you know the roman empire imposed the pax romana right so it was the trade-off you lose your localism you lose your your own natural political common goods in exchange for a peace imposed by Washington DC or Rome or, you know, or Macedon or whatever it is. And, and so that, I think that's a human reality that, that makes this paradox so difficult to, you know, to, 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 um, to deal with. And, and for us uh, individually, so difficult to sort of navigate. I also wanna say that I agree with you that there's a notion of, there's an element of vocation Right, so we're not called to be, you know, to sacrifice our family good and whatnot just for the sake of the political common good, even though in, in a sense, there's a sense in which the political common good is greater than, right, the personal good. But, but we have to, right, to, 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 to have the proper understanding of what, what it is we're supposed to do individually in the here and now. And, you know, the, the, the holy family emigrated from, right, from, from, from Bethlehem to go to Egypt uh when they were persecuted so 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 there's a time for <laughs> there's a time for everything so I'm, I'm saying platitudes here um yeah. and at the end of the day i don't have an answer for the the paradox with which we you know i opened the conversation here uh today i yeah it's it's interesting i i have that that this is uh just a sort of an idea that came into my head is that the number of nations 
what is the ideal number? We're, we're probably not there. We're heading towards it. Uh, and just from uh, my, my sort of reading of sort of interpretations of scripture, where they talk of the apostles catching um, the, the nations in their nets. I was reading that the other day. So I think maybe 153, 153 nations is eventually <laughs> by the end. Where, how that will appear, I don't know, but I see 153. I would, so, and it, and it was approximately that before that, you know, all the, the, uh, the things split recently, you know, in the last 25 years or whatever, is it 40 years actually? Yeah. It's a split. But, um, but nevertheless, it's it's that that is a that that is shifting. That that, that does change with time, and I, and I just don't know where. I believe that by the you know, by the end of times, we will be at that sort of ideal number right. somehow. Well, I mean, historically, if you look at Europe, right? I mean, there was the dominance. I mean, it, it was the Roman Empire for a while, and then you had the uh, essentially a secessionist movement when 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 it broke down. Then you had all kinds of you know medieval Europe was was a whole bunch of yeah. even though there was a, in name the Holy Roman Empire in the West, but it was very ineffectual. And essentially, you had all kinds of um, principalities and and little kingdoms and fiefdoms and so forth. And and in a way, I think that you know those, those were at least maybe to to my romantic romantic idea of of the time. <laughs> they, they seemed appealing. Uh, but again, there was also there must have been some problems because it led to another movement of, yeah, of um, yeah. consolidation and uh, and dominance from a central authority and so forth. So I, I think it's always going to vacillate between those yeah. two two poles. Um, but right now, I'm sympathetic, at least in the in in the U.S. to a secessionist movement, even though I don't think it stands any practical chance of proceeding peacefully. Uh, I think if there is secession, it's going to be pretty violent just because mm -hmm. you know you, you can't segregate people i mean people are living together now with with very diverse you know very uh, yeah. opposite views and i would i would say that it highlights the evil i'm going to say of the sort of marxist driven ideas which are inherently divisive so that, that even within a marxist state with central authority that the, the very ideas promote this sort of continual uh, sort of destruction of society and division of man, just w contained within the philosophy itself, and mm -hmm. that is, is hugely problematical. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to. Sorry, continue, Michelle. No, go ahead, Father Brad. Well, uh, Marx understood, and even a lot of the classical uh, thinkers, Aquinas also understood this: uh, that the division, the division uh, of the division of all of what we would call kind of subsidiary uh, communities, the destruction of family, the destruction of local communities, and the atomization of all individuals, society, is just a precursor to the, to the modern superstate. It's just the taking over uh, of in, uh, taking over control of all now atomized, isolated individuals. Uh, the family, uh, the family, and then lo strong local communities that can elicit then that love of the from the person is the common good is the is the greatest uh, bulwark against tyranny and the greatest the greatest ticket the, the fastest ticket towards tyranny is the atomized individual Marx understood that right um, it, it, correct interestingly and and then the atomized the view that leads essentially to a universalist you know world government type mm -hmm. thing 
And yes. I, I just want to make one, one maybe one, uh, at least for me, one last thing. Um, David, you were mentioning scripture. There's also a passage in scripture that um, I think maybe frequently misunderstood, which is the episode of the, the Tower of Babel, when at mm -hmm. the end, God comes and um, confuses their tongues, right? And splits them up. And if you read it casually, it sounds like a punishment uh, that they be divided and, and separated from one another. Um, when in fact, if you look at before they started building the Tower of Babel, all these people were actually, they each had their own culture and, and language, right? And I think it's a Genesis, I think if it's chapter nine or 10, they're all presented in the aftermath of the floods, right? When they're rebuilding as different nations, each with its own language and, and culture and essentially or trade or, or whatever. And then they get into their mind, the idea of banding together and constructing the Tower of Babel. And God essentially intervenes, but then restores the natural separation that existed wow. between the nations. So, so, so I think the um, a point that I was making, I think on a previous episode is that we live in distinct political communities naturally, and that's a good thing, right? It's, it's, I, think, I think there's a natural division of labor among political communities. We're supposed to you know, uh, take care of this planet and this garden uh, in separate political communities. And we shouldn't conquer each other or be at war with one another or be jealous or, or, or uh, uh, covetous of, of, of one another. We should respect, right? I mean, ideally, I think that's, that was the, the plan that we would have each our own material uh, possession, the, the land in which the, the, you know, the nation would, uh, that, that the nation would cultivate. Uh, but our ambitions and our distorted uh, and, uh, you know, mind and, and will and, and intellect, you know, has led to this, you know, perpetual historical struggle and, and shifts back and forth between war and, and empire. So the United Nations is a Tower of Babel. Yeah, essentially. Essentially, certainly the EU yeah, is. I, lo I love the, it. The EU is in, in many ways, yeah. and and perhaps to some extent the the federal you know I mean the the centralized federal government that has emerged uh, uh, you know after the civil war, uh, and that has continued to become more and more sort of centralized and important and and all dominant, um, but of course you you know you say that you get accused of being a racist and all that kind of stuff, so. <laughs> but so be it. Well, All Michelle, right. I think that's a great, I think that's a fantastic point. Thank you for closing it back. Yeah. Anything else? Uh, anybody else before we, uh, we finish our first season here? No, fantastic. It's been a pleasure to be part of this. That's okay, great. Well, then I want to invite the audience to, uh, to subscribe to whatever channel we're on. You know, it's going to be on YouTube and all, you know, all the other video channels and podcast channels and the God, Man uh, and Markets podcast. And uh, we look forward to season two, which we're preparing right now. And I think there'll be other conversations on similar themes. Uh, but I think we'll be, I hope uh, the audience will enjoy them as much as I have. So on that note, goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. So long for now.